0: Hello and welcome. Be- this is the 51st and penultimate episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Ingus O'G McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this second series is brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we won't ever charge for this podcast, but we are looking for you to put your money where your mouth is and put your money into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre and as you know the simplest way for you to go and do that is just to go and buy yourself some theatre tickets you get a great night out at the theatre the theatre gets to keep on ticking over everybody wins if you find that theatre tickets are outside your reach this week or this month there are ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket go and tell people about this podcast I know we've only got one more to go but hey why not let's not go out with a bang Um, do please tell them about the podcast whether that's in person over a pint or over a cup of coffee or by sharing the link is a Facebook post or retweeting on Twitter or Instagram or any other social media platform do please subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes uh, and do please listen back to all our previous episodes and these episodes are indeed available to stream and for direct download at riseproductions.ie leave us a review on iTunes as we're about to finish maybe that wouldn't be a bad little plan or you of course you can uh, click to rate us on their five star rating system that is a one click deal very easily done and as ever you can follow Follow us on facebook we are facebook.com forward slash rise productions ireland or you can follow us on twitter we are at Rise Ireland. And it's been another busy week here at Rise Towers. We are ticking away in the background with uh, pre-production stuff on the next couple of shows that we have coming up in the first part of next year. We'll have two shows up and going in the first three months, because why the hell wouldn't you? Um, And also just cl- cracking away at the last few episodes of this magical podcast. It's very strange to feel that it's coming to an end. Once again, it's been a hell of a year. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, just doing the last bit of logistics on sorting out uh, these last couple of episodes. But we've got that all sorted out now, so we're going to be going out with a bang and uh, I think you're all going to enjoy them all. And so speaking of which, that brings us to our guest this week and it's none other than the great Neil Murray. One half, if you like, of the artistic director of the Abbey Theatre. And Neil is a really wonderful guy. Such an interesting story about his route into the business and a guy who you can just tell from a mile away is really passionate about theatre. And as you'll hear in the interview, he. talks about his route into the business, and it's one of the most, I guess, heartwarming that I've come across in these in this whole series. I really love his story, so let's hear his story, direct from the man himself. Here he is, the great Neil Murray. <laughs> The wonderful Neil Murray, joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted to have you, sir.
1: Pleasure. Thank you for asking.
0: Uh, let us start as we begin every week. Let's go mm-hmm. back to the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. Have you a moment where there was a light bulb for you early on of an interest in theatre
1: generally? Absolutely. It's, there's a very specific moment. Uh, I I grew up in South Wales um, in a town without theatre. There was, I think it was an amateur theatre there, actually, but there wasn't professional theatre. My parents were wonderful people but didn't have an interest in theatre at all. Um, I went to college uh, in Manchester uh, in England to do a business course, and I was in various dodgy bands, and As everyone really in Manchester should be. As everyone in Manchester should be. It was a great time to be in dodgy <laughs> bands in Manchester. Uh, I, I really, What I really wanted to do was write for the NME. That was what I was going to okay. do. And as part of the, the, the British education system, I'm not sure they still do it, they used to do these wonderful things called sandwich degrees. Which meant you studied for three years, and sandwiched in in was a year of working. Okay. So I went to London to work for a year. The London Borough of Newham Finance Department. This was before um, in Stratford East. This was before the Olympics, way before the Olympics. And Stratford East was a pretty ropey area. The Theatre Royal Stratford East was there. Joan Littlewood's wonderful theatre. But I didn't even go to that. Um, But so while I was in London, uh, I thought I'm always going to the cinema to see these. Trendy arty films. I'm always going to see gigs. I should go to the theatre. So I went down to uh, Leicester Square where they had the ticket booth. I bought a three pound student standby ticket, and I went to see the accidental death of an anarchist by Dario Foe. Yes. Uh, this is in the early 1980s. So this was the original. Uh, it was the original West End production of it. It was it was directed by a guy called Gavin Richards. Um, a company called Belt and Braces were part of that great. UK movement of um, Seven Eighty Four, uh, monstrous regiment. Yeah. These kind of politically informed theatre companies. So I think it started out as a fairly small scale show and it ended up in Windham's in the West End. And I went to see it on my own, and I, I, you know, I genuinely had a kind of damascene moment where the scales just dropped. I thought it, it was funny, it was political, it was urgent, it was about what was happening now in Europe and. Um, uh, uh, it, it just struck a chord, and and I left the theatre, and I je- and I you know I said to myself I don't know what I want to do, but it needs to be something to do with that. Amazing. And it, it was a proper trigger, and you know the next week I went to Sir Julie Walters and Educating Rita, wow. uh, Sir Angela Pleasance in Pinter's The Hot House directed by Pinter. It was just week after week I started going, and I went back to Manchester and limped through my degree. Um, Got a Desmond, as we call it in the UK, a tutu, Uh, (laughs) just about managed to scrape through. And then from there, started working in theater. Wow. That's incredible. Mm. And and
0: amazing that that was the original production. I feel it kind of feels like it set the temperature, maybe. Yeah. And and,
1: and I can't see it Uh, again. I've tried to watch other productions, and I generally have to leave. (laughs) Really awful. Friends have made productions which have been perfectly good, but I have such a clear memory of that production that I can't sit through it again. I was yeah. like, no, 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 that's nowhere near as good as the one I saw.
0: So how do you go about breaking into the theater business, having done a business degree mm. and with sights set on the NME?
1: Uh, well, as I say, I finished my degree, and I was living in Manchester, which was a fantastic place to be. Uh, this is like early, mid-'80s. Um, the hacienda was about to open <laughs> and, uh this place called the corner house was opening which was a big trendy cinema so i i started ushering i was an usher right i was an usher in the theater um at the palace theater which was a big number one touring house that would have annie for a month and blood brothers for a month there you go uh and also gigs and an and opera and dance so i started to see and I would just stand at the back and watch, and watch, and just immerse myself. Mm. And I also had friends uh, who worked at the Royal Exchange Theater in Manchester, right. which is a r- remarkable theater. Still one of my favorites. In the round, almost space module built in, in what is the old stock exchange in Manchester, a glorious building. And they worked on the stage crew there, and they said, oh, there's some work going on the crew if you want to come down. So I started off doing overnight get-out, really miserable jobs where you'd literally strike sets. They'd finish a show on Saturday, strike it, start fitting up on Sunday for the next show. So I started doing on the, the get-in and get-out crews, and then I got offered to say, well, do you want to work on a couple of shows? So uh, I worked on a production of the prime of Miss Jean Brodie with El- the great Eleanor Braun playing Jean Brodie. And we, And I thought we were the bees' knees because it's in the round of the exchange. Everybody can see you all the time, right. so we thought we were rock stars. we were like bigger than the actors. we were like, hey we're the rock exchange crew and um and there was a basket you had to be in to do stuff, and there was there was like um like duck walk planks you had to go across to do things. so I thought I thought we were the, we were the talk of the town, you know we were like stars. And one day, uh, and I was I was really enjoying it. There was a couple of little mishaps here and there. A few things went wrong. Took the doors off once, getting the truck in too quickly. But you know, minor things. And um, <laughs> I, I thought this is terrific. I found my niche, and um, I got called in to see um, a brilliant woman called Hazel Crisp, who was the company manager of the Royal Exchange, and she. I thought she was sitting me down to say, this is what we, we want you to do next. And I think this is great. I, she said, how do you think it's going, Neil? I said, I think it's going great. I think, you know, I'm loving it. I'm thinking maybe stage management might be the thing for me. And she kind of stopped me very gently and she said, the thing is, Neil, everybody really likes you and you're really enthusiastic, but you're dangerous on stage. <laughs> and I was fired. She literally wow. said, you can't work here on the crew anymore. But she was lovely and she said, you know, she said, you, you love theater. Everybody can tell you love theater. You, you'll find what you need to do, but it's not this. Uh, and I licked my wounds, and I went back to the palace and um, started running the bar there. And, and, and I found a route through Front of House was my route. So, I was a front of the house manager. That, that is was.
0: incredible to me. And I, I really love to hear a story like that because mm. clearly we are talking about a passion that was ignited. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, you do still love it as much as that. But you've properly paid your dues <laughs> to get to where you are. Uh, I, I hope so.
1: I think so. No, I mean, uh, yeah, so I was assistant front of house manager in Newcastle, The what's now Northern Stage, was then Newcastle Playhouse. And then went back to Manchester, worked in the Corner House as a front of house manager, went to the Citizens in Glasgow. And that was a formative job for me to see the citizens in action. This was 1987 to 1990 when they were, you know, Glenda Jackson was playing Mother Courage, Rupert Everett was cutting the sway through Oscar Wilde. Uh, It was a glorious place to be. um, And that really is still, I, I consider that my kind of theatrical alma mater, I suppose.
0: Was there some kind of a shift in you that coincided with that geographical shift? Was there something different about the temperature up in Scotland? I don't mean the literal temperature in Scotland, yes, but maybe sure. that too, I guess. Sure.
1: Well, it was strange. I, I mean, I, I remember the day I moved to Scotland. Uh, it, was, it was August, and uh, it was an August day. My friends drove me up in a van. I was staying you know, in a flat in the west end of Glasgow. And I hadn't really been to Glasgow. I'd never been, um, other than for my interviews. I didn't know it at all. And... There was something about arriving there, and maybe it was it was the it was the historic time, which was, you know, this is late eighty seven. Um, Glasgow felt like a European city in a way that Manchester certainly had, not Manchester felt like a determinedly Northern English. Yeah. and I'd come from South Wales, which was very rooted in its own identity and geography, and Glasgow, to, to my astonishment, felt European. And, and maybe I'm I'm going through Rose Tinted Glasgow. Of course, in 1990, it became European City of Culture, which was a huge thing. And you know, Glasgow is probably still, you know, Touchwood for, for Galway. But, but you know, Glasgow was one of the few cities who really used it to to reinvent themselves mm-hmm. from post-industrial malaise mm-hmm. into actually we've got amazing architecture, we've got an amazing culture, and we're Glasgow, and we don't give a shit. And to generate lasting impact, uh, like indeed, a legacy indeed, effect. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I, mean, I think, it's, it's, interestingly, I think that's in danger of being eroded at the moment. I think Glasgow is at a... There's, there's, something, there's something symbiotic about the art school being destroyed twice, yeah. which is like, come on, <laughs> come on, we can do this. Once is bad enough, don't do it twice. Um, so I hope Glasgow hangs on to that, because I have enormous affection for that city. Um, but yeah, going to Glasgow at that time, and, and I think the combination of that theatre company who were, they were in the Gorbals of Glasgow when the Gorbals still kind of just about existed. It was pre-demolition or during that demolition. And you had this theatre, and I remember going there for my interview, and I could cross, it was those huge wooden doors, and it said, all tickets £3, unemployed, free. That's what it said on the doors. Wow. And it was a major... Um, it, it, I think I think people can probably see that in what we're trying to do at the Abbey, yeah. the influence of the citizens. But the work was extraordinary because it was European work. They were doing, you know, Schiller, Goethe, Pirandello, um, not so much Shakespeare to be honest. But yeah. they were doing the giants of European theatre in these new versions and incredibly, often high camp productions but in a way that people just would come. And you know, the people felt, you know, and it was affordable as well. And there was something about it that was just magical, really magical.
0: Yeah, it seems, it seems like it was in a very exciting time yeah. to be there. What was it in the, can you point back now at this stage mm. to anything in those early days that really cemented stuff for you or that you feel kind of shaped you? I mean, was it wasn't that ethos of, all tickets three quid, so we're, we're equal across the board. All tickets three quid, and if you can't afford to come, we want you more than anybody else.
1: There, there, was, there was that, and I, th- and I think in in my own development, I suppose you know I I, done, I, I was a friend house manager for three years, and I was ca- I kind of hit a glass ceiling. I was thinking, what do I do? I want I want more engagement with 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 the art somehow, and the the director of the Citizens was a wonderful is a wonderful man called Giles Havergal, mm. who was. Um, you know, just a phenomenal, phenomenal figure. Who he was an actor, director, you know, writer, and and did all of these things. And whenever people come, would come to the c- citizens, and they would say to him, Charles, what wh- what should we go and see in Glasgow? You go, Oh, darling, ask Neil. Neil knows. Neil knows everything. Neil knows. will tell you what's happening. And uh, at that time, the word theater producer wasn't being used. It was kind of you were an administrator. You might be a general manager if you were lucky. Yeah. You weren't a producer. That was a film word. Yes, of course. And. And I, I suppose I fell into producing because um, I, 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 w- I spent two years working in television, like Granada Television in Manchester which uh, was deeply unhappy. Uh, it just made me realize that I loved theater and television wasn't for me.
0: Really? And it, was it the lack of the immediacy, or what was it about I, TV? Uh,
1: well, I was brought in, uh, I was kind of on the business side, and my job was, was, was both assigning and negotiating contracts for directors, producers. And I was at Granada in an amazing time, and they were making Cracker, Prime suspects, these extraordinary yeah, things.
0: that's golden age stuff.
1: But. But And they also made World in Action, which I love. the big documentary. But they were also making This Morning with Richard and Judy. <laughs> and you've been framed. Now, see, Angus, you laugh. Titans, I've You TV. laugh. You laugh. But it was clear that that was going to be more important yeah. to them. And that's how it's... That's how it, you know, Granada, cl- they clung on for a while. But there was a sense that unless you could see... I, I had a really great friend who's, who's very high-ranking in television now. And he, he was a Ph.D. in history, and he'd worked in the sport department at Granada, which I thought was amazing. And he ended up producing, well, very early on, Richard and Judy. And I used to say to him, how can you do it? How can you sleep at night, you know? And he said, you don't get it. See, he was a, he was interested in the art of television as much as what the content How do you make it? How do you do it? What's the skill involved? And I just couldn't see that. All I could see was, well... I'm really happy working on Cracker and I'm really happy working on Prank, but I'm not gonna dirty my hands on You've Been Framed. And of course, You've Been Framed was paying for all of, of this stuff. I so, and, and I, I just realized I was on the wrong side of the table yeah. as well, and um, I, I just wanted it, I, and I miss theater, so I went back to Scotland and I worked for 784 Theater Company, who were one of the great touring uh, political companies established by the great John McGrath in 1971. Um, you know, and their name, for those of people who don't know it, 784 came from a, a, a stat in the, the Economist of 1966, which showed that 7% of the population owned 84% of the wealth. So they were rooted in this kind of telling socialist stories, although interestingly, a lot of them were very wealthy middle-class people themselves as it turned out, but, <laughs> but that didn't matter. They had incredible integrity, and they were taking shows all around the highlands and islands of Scotland. They really invented rural touring in Scotland perhaps in the UK um, and I went there as, as their general manager but I worked with a brilliant young director called Ian Riki, who Ian had just graduated from the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama from the directing course and Ian was about 24 you know and I was kind of you know not that much older than him but I'd been around a little bit and we were thrown together um, but we really got on from the day one and liked each other and Ian basically said to me look you know The only people I know are the people I went to college with, which were like David Tennant. And they were great people, um, but they weren't enough for them to to build a whole company around. So um, when I say things to him, so, you know, who's doing casting? He said, well, 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 will you help me do it? So I would help with casting. I say, who's doing music for this? He said, I don't know. What do you think? So suddenly all these things I'd had a huge interest in, I could bring to the table and and kind of, by osmosis, I ended up being a producer, I suppose, by saying, right, I get this. Not only do I do the money for you to make th- the tour work, but I'll put the team together for you, and I'll bring ideas, to, th- and Ian let me bring ideas to the table, which was fantastic.
0: This is something I find really interesting, because in many situations, even within theatre, if you say to someone, what does a producer mm. do? What is a producer? Even producers themselves sometimes find that a hard one to
1: answer. Uh, we do. We, we, whenever we do the meet and greets, uh, when well, we used to do the meet and greets at the National Theatre of Scotland, which we'll come on to, I'm sure, but when people said, so, you know, what's your name, what do you do? I said, well, I'm Neil Murray, I'm the executive producer of the National Theatre of Scotland, and I balance art and money. Yeah. I, I think I that's balance art and, and way money. Way that's that's the it. simplest way I can do it, you know, and money is, is, by money you mean business and all of those things, economics, but to me it's, but art has to be part of it. If if art isn't part of it, then you're not a producer. Well, you're just an accountant. I mean, is that the... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You're an accountant or you you are properly an uh, an administrator and we need those people and they're brilliant. Absolutely. But, But I would hope, and I certainly hope at the Abbey that, you know, we try and everybody who works here makes... Has a stake in the art. Yeah, because yeah, you know what they do ends up on stage. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny one because I've kind of become an accidental
0: producer over the years, kind mm. of out of necessity. And the best kind. I, and I wouldn't have described myself as a producer initially, and then I had it. I had it clarified for me mm-hmm. by, of all people, Michael Colgan, who I wouldn't have a huge amount of time for, but he referred to it in terms of the way a magician produces a rabbit from a hat, something that didn't exist before and you conjure yeah. it into existence. Yeah. And in terms of the artistic strand of that, that's something I really identify with. These are you know, yeah. the stories I make, the shows I, t- shows I make. You're going, okay, well, this is something that I'm passionate about. This is something I want to tell. And you conjure it into existence. And sometimes that is about just kind of drumming up money or finding funding or whatever else.
1: Or or sometimes coming up with a great idea, coming up with the idea for the show. I mean, you know, sometimes that's the producer's role as well. Mm. If you look at someone like Anne Clark, you know, Anne's extraordinary, you know, of, of coming up with ideas and driving them through. That's a producer's role as well is to come up with ideas. And that's one of the great things. Uh, certainly, we're working with with Ian back then, and working with Vicky Featherstone, National Theatre of Scotland. and working with Graham here. His my ideas are as valid as anybody else's, and you, and indeed they have to be. Otherwise, I, w- I don't want to do it. Otherwise, yeah. I want to go somewhere else.
0: Those partnerships seem to have been a recurring theme mm. through the career, mm. uh, for some people who might be a bit more. On the control freak end of things, they'll go. No, it's my art. It's my idea. I want to do it. You seem to thrive on collaboration, which
1: mm-hmm. I guess in theatre is probably no bad thing. It, would you? Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's. I, I, I think be, I think better ideas come from collaboration. I think it's much less lonely. Yeah. Frankly, running an organisation uh, in partnership with somebody who you really like and trust mm. is 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 you know it can be a tough place sometimes. You know, when the buck stops, and uh, having somebody else to bounce off. And and I just think you know, and you learn so much from somebody else. I mean, Vicky especially was incredibly inspirational to me and and, and influential on me, um, and and continues to be so. Um, and I just think you learn, you watch and go, wow. Well, if she could be that brave, I can be that brave. Or actually, if she if she can say no, that's crazy, mm-hmm. then she's probably right. So maybe you know. So you you, you I think you learn from those things. Um, uh, no, I think better work comes from collaboration.
0: Is there something in filtering that initial seed of your idea? If you filter that through the prism of this other great artist who you like mm. and respect, that it, it that you say that it improves and it grows that it, it, it shifts it well, off its axis.
1: Maybe I think they do something that I can't do. You know, I'm not a director. <laughs> I've never directed a play in my life, and uh, I mean, people have asked me to. <laughs> write, no, no, no it's, you know, I'm not a director. I know that isn't my skill, so. So, coming up with an idea and then seeing somebody else really run with it, but keep you engaged with it and, and, uh, and working through it it 's incredibly fulfilling i think that 's what I love is seeing wow, I had that that was my thought to do that, and look how look look who else has built on it um, I, I think i 've been lucky a lot of the people I work with as well I mean I worked a lot with um, with John Tiffany, the director, and you know john 's one of those brilliant people who. John John will always say that you know. John surrounds himself with people who he thinks are better than him. Right. He, his ego is not such that I'm going to work with people who are going to be yes people. So yeah. John works with this extraordinary team of artists. Now, he, he brings his own genius to that and, and the own finishing, but he would acknowledge that he works with brilliant people. Yeah. And I love seeing what brilliant people do with an idea. That I certainly couldn't have realized in any, anything like the way that it gets realized. That's really thrilling. I
0: it's think. that line of you know never be the smartest person in the room. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room,
1: basically. Uh, exactly. <laughs> in my case, it means the room isn't very bright, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> change it.
0: Um, I want to talk then about when the Tron comes mm. into your life yeah. because it's yeah. a place very dear to our heart. It's the first place we ever yeah. toured internationally with Rise. Yeah. Um, and it seems like it's a pretty special place. Was it? Was it a good time for you? It was a fantastic
1: time. I mean, it was an interesting. In time for me, Um, I went there after I worked for 784. I did five years with 784, and I really wanted to stretch out a bit. And uh, the Tron came up at a very—I mean, it had been run by a brilliant duo of people called um, David Taylor, who was executive director, and Michael Boyd, who was the artistic director. Michael was going to the RSC at that point as an associate. And uh, Sir Michael, boy, as you know it's <laughs> uh, an Irishman from Belfast. Um, Michael ended up, you know, being the director of the Royal Shakespeare Company and really mm. reinventing the RSC. So there were big shoes to fill. And Michael um, was a brilliant director and made the Tron, which was only a 230-seat theatre. It, you know, it always pinched above its weight. I always felt the Tron and the Travers mm. in Scotland. They. I think what they were brilliant for doing for Scotland was that they convinced people that they were main stages when they were really studio spaces. So it meant that people, you could do new plays, and and actually it broke down that fear of saying, well, we'll do the classics on the main stage and we'll do the new play in the studio. Mm -hmm. The Tron and the Traverse, they were the main stages. So I went there and I worked with a Russian director of first called Irina Brown. We went as a team. And it didn't, I loved Irina and she was a brilliant director. Um... But she had a very Russian sensibility, which didn't always lend itself uh, to running an organization. Um, but what she left me with was, was, well, A, she left me with an extraordinary production, which was after three years, she, she moved on and I stayed. And I said to the board, I'll stay, but only if I can run the organization. Okay. I, I won't st- now I want to run it as a producer. Yeah. And they earned an art, and I had to go through a process, and I was interviewed, and I got the job as the director of the Tron. Um, Again, working with brilliant people, but I was finally, I was at the head of it and and I was making the artistic choices. And I was lucky in that uh, the the last project Irina did before she left was a wonderful play called Further Than the Furthest Thing by by Zinni Harris, which was eventually produced in Ireland, I know. And Irina did did a proper, I mean, my God, a landmark production of it, which was a co-production with the National Theatre in London. So I got to co-produce with with, with a big organization for the first time. And we then toured it to South Africa. We went to South Africa on an international tour. So that's—it was a great jumping-off point for me. So, so it Im- imma- immediately gave me some, uh, some kind of purchase in, in the world. And the Tron suddenly became this place. And we had a great relationship with Ireland. You know, um, I worked with Jim Culleton very early on. We did Marco Rose" from both hips to yeah. the Tron. Um, I'd seen. The Abbey, doing the original production of The May at the Tron, with Alwyn uh, Fuere and and indeed some of the cast who've just done it now. I was talking to them about being in Glasgow. Um, So Ireland became quite an important partner. Druid came over, um, and I did that for five or six years. And we also, at that time, I got asked by um, Brian McMaster, who was the director of the Edinburgh International Mm -hmm. Festival, if he could use the Tron as his kind of engine room for Scottish work, Th- there'd been a there'd been a terrible record of of Scottish theatre in the international festival, and it was called the graveyard slot because <laughs> you just knew it was going to die. It was because you suddenly you'd have these Scottish companies who were making new shows in Edinburgh on the international festival alongside Robert Lapage yeah. and Peter Stein and Gary Hines, and and you know it wasn't going to hold up. So I said, well, we'll do it, but we've got to do it properly, and we've got to be resourced properly, and. Brian said to me, would you meet with Anthony Nielsen, who I admired hugely was a writer-director, about a play he wants to do, which we want to do in Edinburgh. It was called The Wonderful World of Dissocia. Oh, yes. Which is an extraordinary play. Which is also out a production here. It all has a production here. And we did the original production of that for the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. And it was a big hit. Actually, it was a bit not that many people saw it. It was in the last week of the festival when, they, when the festival and the Fringe were out of sync. So actually not that many people saw it, but enough important people saw it to go, wow. Yes. That guy knows how to produce. That guy knows how to put stuff on stage. And we did more of Anthony's work. And we did David Gregg's play San Diego for the International Festival. So the Tron, we started to build up. We, did, we, did, um, we were doing a show with the Barbican in London. Um, and I was incredibly happy at the Tron. And uh, I got to run it. We had a f- I love music. Music is as important to me as almost anything goes back to the enemy. <laughs> so I ran an amazing music program there. And I was incredibly happy. And and then Vicky Featherstone got the job at National Theatre, National Theatre of Scotland was established. Um, this was 2003 and started, put a team together I think in 2005. And Vicky was looking for somebody to work with her and at first I said no, I was really happy and I felt I had a bit more to do at the Tron and she kept, she was very persistent and said I kind of need you to come and help me do this. And if you've ever met Vicky, you can't say no in the end. So I. And I'd worked with her a bit, I'd, we co-produced, she was running Payne's Plough at yeah. that time, so Payne's Plough and the Tron had done some work together, we'd done David Greggs play the Pyrenees in Glasgow in London and London and I loved working with her, you know, we had a great friendship I suppose, and um, she said come and do it. So it was kind of, it was proper. it was one of those your country needs you moments, um, so I did and, um, and that was 2005.
0: How exciting and simultaneously terrifying and daunting and invigorating <sighs> is stepping in at the ground floor mm. of such an ambitious and kind of brave project as setting up a national theater like that
1: well it was kind of extraordinary in in the scotland i mean people would argue against me but scotland does not have a strong theatrical tradition um, it had a strong music tradition, has a strong music hall tradition, but theatre had been very much um, kind of Anglified. It'd been English people doing clipped English accents in Edinburgh. The citizens in Glasgow um, had certainly changed that. But th- but really, you know, you had seven eighty four. But beyond back beyond that, there weren't there was, there was nothing like the canon the island has. Okay. So there's nothing like the legacy, the history of, of of an O'Casey or a Singh or any of that. You know. Um, y- there was the odd play here, there, you know. There's the play called "A Satire of the Three Estates," um, which is the kind of, you know, 18th century Scottish play. And everybody says, "When are you going to do a satire of the Three Estates?" You're like, "Well, uh, we're not going to do it. <laughs> well, we <laughs> might do it. Spoiler. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> it's not going to happen." Um, so it was a bit of a blank sheet of paper. But there was this huge anticipation of, "Well, what will it be?" And when it was, when the conversation around the National Theatre was started, what was interesting was that the the politicians kind of handed the, the decision almost to the theatre community, to say, "What do you want it to be?" And it was very clear to the community of which I was part of, at the Tron, that what what might happen was that you would have the you you would have the usual bunfight fight between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Of course, with which one is it going to be, Glasgow or Edinburgh? And also, we were looking around the country, seeing theatres that were half empty. We were strict to fill all these theatres, so there was a sense of why why build another new building that we don't need actually what we have is an infrastructure, uh, and Scotland had just was very scarred by coming through the building of its Parliament building, right. which now you know I think eventually will be loved and revered, but at the time was a source of huge ca- almost shame you know uh, the politicians had scribbled a budget of forty million on the back of an envelope, and it cost four hundred million Jesus. so there was no appetite for new capital projects in yeah. Scotland it was like no we've we've done that so. The theatre community really came up with this model of what if we had a national theatre that used the existing resources. I think even at that point, though, I think people thought what it would be would would be a glorified arts council. They would have the money and it would choose, say, to to Dundee Rett, well, you make that show and we'll give you money. So when Vicky Theterson was appointed, it was an incredible surprise. It genuinely was. Even on the day she was announced, people were phoning me saying, like, is it you? And I was like, I don't know who it is. It's not me. I don't know who it is. I didn't go for it. It's not me. Um, blah, blah, blah. And, f- you know, Vicky was she, was, she was English. She was in her 30s. She was a woman. All, all of which these are things, terrible things. All these <laughs> things were red <laughs> rags, though, to yeah. the kind of macho Scottish Im- culture. But, of course, she was, it was, a, it was a genius of an appointment because she was a working director who said, sure, I'll work with these, I'll work <laughs> with these builders, but I want to make work. We're going to make work. Um, and that was what we did and uh, but it was terrifying. The first year we had all this money and we thought we, we couldn't spend it. We didn't even know what to do with it. It was like we'd come from Payne's Plough and the Tron and we were like, <laughs> This has got two more knots than we've, we've ever <laughs> had. <laughs> you know, so it was like we were like, Well just not be afraid of the money. Just yeah. just, just just stick a knot on but let's make work like we would have made it. And we were very lucky that, you know, in the first year we, we, we rushed the program through to announce um and, and a couple of big things happened. That the first project was a project called Home, which is interesting to see what DTF have been doing over yeah. the last week. But our version of Home was ten, ten communities all around Scotland, all happening on the same night, all made with communities. So it meant it was y- the critics couldn't get near it because they couldn't see them all. It was it was review proof, and we saw it as, uh, as lighting beacons on hills and saying right, we're up, Europe, up, up, It was like it was wonderful. It was a brilliant night, and it set the tone to say. The National Theatre will always be somewhere near where you are. So we did one on, um, we you know we did it in Dumfries in, in the Borders, and we did it um, in Inverness, and we did it on the islands. We did it on Stornoway. It was it was kind of everywhere. So that happened, and then we also did Black Watch in our first year, and that was that kind of changed everything in that a show that was the biggest risk because when we announced it, we didn't have all we had was the title. Really. <laughs> we said to Greg Burke. Uh, you know will you uh, on on Vicky's first day I mean Vicky I mean the the, the bravery of Vicky is extraordinary you know she started the National Theatre of Scotland on her own in an office with a mobile phone it was her and one person to buy furniture for the office and on her first day um, she bought the the Herald the Glasgow Herald which is a broadsheet paper and on the front page it had about the plan to amalgamate all the Scottish regiments in this new thing and get rid of the tradition of Scots fighting for their own communities or from their own communities. And on the inside page, I had the story of three Black Watch soldiers blown up by a roadside bomb in Iraq. And she put the two together and went, wow, th- that's interesting. From phoned Greg Burke, who was a friend of hers, who she knew. Greg had written Gagarin Way and, and another show called The Straits uh, about, li- about being an army kid, because he's been an army kid. And she said... You're from you're from where the Black Watch are from, uh, you know. what uh, would you follow this story for me? And she went, and he went, I'm following it. It's, you won't believe what's going on yeah. out there and back home. So we put that project together really as a as a. Um, it was kind of a, 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 a verbatim, but then we brought in narrative to it. But when we announced it, we really didn't have a script. We had a pile of documentation. Mm-hmm. We had a pile of interviews, and then it came from that. And when the show opened, it just Kind of changed the landscape. For yeah, us.
0: I mean, I, I think it had a seismic impact throughout theatre generally, but particularly here. We, yeah. as you may well know, particularly with our own national theatre, we're going through a very turbulent time. Yeah. And then to see this newly forged national theatre, yeah. in, in a Celtic cousin like, yeah, you know, yeah, as close yeah. as it was, have this almost instantaneous global yeah. success. Yeah. It there were reverberations here that that really hit home. Yeah. Um I mean, is part of that look? Is part of it sound critical judgment built up over a career of working on <laughs> really great work? Uh, is it knowing when to strike while the iron was hot, or what do you think? What th- do you think it's? Th- I, think, I, it I think it was a
1: bit of. I think it was a. There were a few things in there. I think there was a bit of. We were. We were all uh, there were myself, Vicky, John, Tiffany, who directed it, Greg, um, Neil Black, who was the production manager on it, who was a huge part of that. I think what we did was we held our nerve. What we said was we. We we want to do it uh, in 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 Travers. We want to play it in Travers. We want to play it in a military hall. So we found a drill hall in Edinburgh, and there's there's some contention over whose idea this last bit was. I I claim it's mine, but I'm not even sure it's true that when we because it was on the fringe, it wasn't Mm. an official festival. It was on the fringe. The official festival, we did another show. We did another Anthony Nielsen show for the international festival, Um, but um, somebody. I can cont- I contend it was me. Said we should time the show to finish when the military tattoo finishes, so that when the audience come out, having been shell shocked by Black Watch, where the the last scene is you know, the soldiers marching and falling, and th- they come out as the fireworks going off from the tattoo, which okay. has been celebrating. And something about that moment, um, and we were still in the middle of of the Iraq War; it was still ongoing. Th- the play. Uh, the production didn't, didn't make um, a, ch- a choice. It, it was neutral in the sense of what we said was we wanted to honor the soldiers' voices. Um, so we didn't take a side. So, so, so uh, when it first opened, you would have old Blackwatch soldiers waving their red hackles at the end, in t- and you'd have troops out of Iraq. Guys on the other side standing up, almost facing off each other, and yeah. people wanted us to take a side, and we never would. We yeah. said, "No, that's not what why we did this." You know, you can make your choice from watching it. So it was a mixture of the material was brilliant, the artists who worked on it. I mean, I think um, you know, John, and especially working with Stephen Hoggard, the, the movement director, who's now you know a superstar as well. But I think that was the first time they really found this vocabulary where movement became as important as, as language and. It was just uh, Gareth Fry who did the sound design. You know, they've all they've all gone on to do extraordinary things. But Blackwatch felt it was the moment where they all landed at once. Yeah.
0: Can we talk a bit about that international success? Yeah. Uh, and indeed, kind of, you know, the Broadway transfers, transfers and stuff that happened as well.
1: Um. Yeah, it didn't happen for that. You No, I Yeah, mean, but, but with with subsequent stuff from. Subsequent, from we did Media. eventually. Yeah, we did a couple of we did Broadway and West End. I mean, we. We did a production of Macbeth with Alan Cummings, yeah. uh, which we did in Glasgow originally at the tramway, um, which Alan had wanted to do this thing where he would play, do Macbeth, basically. Although there were two other brilliant actors in it who often get, get overlooked. It wasn't a one-person Macbeth as, as the American producer thought it was, almost until he had to pay the other actors, which <laughs> is hysterical. Um, so we did that, and, we, and, and, and also we'd established a relationship at National Theatre of Scotland with the Lincoln Center. Um, where Druid, we often playing. Yes. We, I, we always tell stories of, um, of of ourselves checking out of hotels when Druid were checking in. We'd have a Celtic connection in the <laughs> lobby of a New York hotel as they were all piling in, as we were piling out. Often, um, so so we we done it in, in in with Alan. We we done the show just in in Glasgow and the Lincoln Center Festival, and we got approached to do that on Broadway, and that was a fascinating experience of kind of almost handing it over, but. Not handing it over, yeah. and in, including—I I, I kid not—because if you've seen the, if you ever saw the show, the, the Alan, but the, the the doctor, there's a doctor and a nurse who play a key role, both in Macbeth in the story, particularly the death of Lady Macbeth scenes, and it was set in a, a the the piece was set in a, in a in a kind of an institution where somebody's a mental health institution. So these characters were really important. So when we then moved to New York, I remember we'd, we'd done all the work on it and we were doing all the deals. And I got this irate phone call from the New York producer saying, why, why are there three actors on the payroll? I said, because there the three actors in the show. He said, it's a one-man show. I said, well, have you seen it? No. <laughs> you know, And he'd never actually seen the show. The guy who was theoretically was put all the money, he'd never seen it. Um, so those things were really interesting. And... Uh, and being part of that world, and, and Alan especially, is such a big star in New York, much yeah. bigger than he is anywhere else. But um, well, he's a star everywhere. But New York especially, he really is. So it was interesting being in that kind of world. And then I suppose the other experience we had in the UK, we produced Let the Right One In, the original yeah. production in Dundee. And that was there was always a, there was always a thought that, ma- that might go to the West End. I, hand on heart, I never thought it was a West End show. So we did it in Dundee. We then did it at the Royal Court in London, but eventually Bill Kenwright took it to the West End, and it ran for six months and did fine. And and then we were lucky enough to bring it here to, to Dublin, which was a thrill to do it here. But I never really thought that was a commercial show. It's interesting, Alan. You could see mm-hmm. why yeah. that was. Like was Alan coming, you know. But the, you know, e- even even with that, you get these New York runs in such a strange way, and that that show was timed to open. Just before the Tony nominations came out, and there was a real expectation from the New York producer that he would be nominated for a Tony, mm-hmm. and he wasn't. He wasn't, which to everybody's disappointment. And there was a real hard decision of, well, do we keep running or don't we? Do we close? Do we keep running? And we kept running, and it built up again. Yeah. It built up, but you know, it played for a fourteen-week season. Um, but yeah, it was, it, those things are interesting. I mean, it's not, it's not my natural home, if I'm okay. honest. It's something that's interesting, and I love the. Uh, different set of negotiation that takes place and the different <laughs> conversations, but it's not my natural home. I think the work is has to be right. And does it uh, feel
0: very different to producing, that's gonna say normal theater, but you know what I mean, to producing normally rather than that, that super scale commercial stuff, does it feel very different?
1: It, it does because they're, <clears throat> they're much, they 're much tighter, strangely, right, yeah, you know because it's their money it's yeah. their own money <laughs> we subsidized theater it, it you know we take great care of the money, but we also want to look after the artists, yeah. you know there's much less you know they're really if they can screw screw you, they will, and we would say, "Well, hang on a minute, you know you 're not paying the proper sp- you know um allowances for our actors they say well that's the west End allowance, so we had we, and we had actors and let the right one in who didn't do it in London because they were being paid less by the West End producer than they have been paid in Dundee <laughs> by us. <laughs> Seriously, they went, no, we can't do that. Yeah. So it's that kind of, you know, every pound's a prisoner mentality, um, which is which is different. You don't, you know, I tend to, th- you know, w- whilst I'm, I hope I'm careful with money and touch wood, you know, hear things economically get pretty sound at the moment. But I also hope if some if the show needs a little bit of help you give it yeah. whereas in commercial they'll cut any corner wow okay and i find that difficult yeah
0: i um, <laughs> i think i want to talk now obviously about the building we are currently yeah. find ourselves in yeah. um and the decision uh for you guys to come mm. over here i uh, mm. i though i love this institution with all my heart mm. um you have a I history have here a as well. his parents uh, grandparents met on the abbey stage Indeed? parents met on the peacock no. stage um so I have a deep love for the place, but I also think it's a brief that's impossible to fulfill as artistic director here. Because I think as soon as you go, OK, well, look, this is our program, they go, oh, so where's all the female playwrights? OK, so we do a full season of female playwrights. Right, Where's all the Irish language? Now where's all the dance? Where's the work for kids? Where's the touring work? Why are you neglecting the archive? Why are you neglecting the canon? Where are the mid-career artists? Where are the young artists? Like, I, I think it's almost impossible to tick all those boxes. But you guys have come over and have done a pretty spectacular job so far. How was the decision to come over in the first place? Mm-hmm.
1: And how are you finding it since you guys have been here? <laughs> uh, it was very kind of you to say we're doing a spectacular. I'm not sure everybody feels that. But as you say, I think it's, it's a kind of you really can't please everybody in this job. But we're trying. We are trying. Um, the initial decision, i I've been at NTS for nine years. Uh, Vicky had left her in the Royal Court. I was feeling slightly bereft, if I'm honest. Right. Um, and you director <coughs> came in, Laurie Sansom, who was terrific. And we did the James plays, which was a huge success. And we'd done that with the National. But I was starting to think genuinely, like it was similar to the time I left the Tron. That was nine years. I can feel ten years is a good time, both for you as an individual and for the organization you're in. I think it's about the right time, unless yeah. there's a very real reason to stay longer. I think ten years is about right, or around then. So I was kind of lifting my head a little bit thinking, well, what might I do next? Graham had been working as an associate with National Theatre of Scotland. Uh, and I've known Graham for 20 years since he ran his own company, Theatre Babel. Um, we'd worked together at the Tron. He then came into NTS. Um, and we'd worked really closely, especially on the, uh, the, the independence referendum year. Graham and I had done a lot of the big kind of public-facing events that NTS had done, which had been great fun to do. Um, and we kind of got quite close, I suppose, in terms of ideas. Um, And it was Graham's wife, actually, Julie, who had seen, we'd both seen that the Abbey was up, and I think we might have had a conversation, somebody might have said, have you seen the Abbey's up? We wouldn't get that, just doubling it to the Abbey, you know. Um, So we knew it was there, and Julie, I think Graham's wife, at one point said, why do 't the, the two of you just do it why don 't why don't you do it together? so we sat t- we laughed for a day and then we went actually it 's not a about. maybe we should think about this, <laughs> so we thought about it and, and you know we knew you know i have been coming to the Abbey for over twenty years to see work and at DTF and I knew Fieca Little. a um, little uh, I knew Richard Wakeley'd worked here back yes. so i 'd had connections to the Abbey um, and I knew, you know I knew how important the theater is. I would say to people there aren 't many. Theaters in the world, where you say one word and people know exactly what city you say. i be Dublin, obviously. Yeah. You know, you, I was very aware of the weight that went with this job, and, and a little afraid of that, I suppose. Um, but again, going back to what we said before, it's not as lonely as yeah. there's two of you. So uh, we 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 sat down and we said, okay, let's do it, and we put together a letter and a proposal, which is uh, which is kind of what we're doing. We we propose what we're doing. We said we want. We felt that there was a sense that perhaps the Abbey could be more, there was time for the Abbey to open up a bit. There was certainly pressure, I think, coming from people saying, you know, let's change to look at that model and change it a little. So we put together a a proposal which was based on the Abbey producing, co-producing, presenting, working in collaboration, trying to find a way to get the peacock in full animation, which we knew was really crucial and important here. And we put that in front of the board. And, and I think we genuinely thought, we'll have a lovely day out in Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a pint afterwards. Uh, but but maybe there'll be something in the idea that might interest them. Uh, and maybe they'll ask us to do a week's cons- consultancy work. And I have to say, they were incredible. The, the, the panel we met was a lot of the, the board of the Abbey at that time. They were very warm and enthusiastic. And they seemed to have an appetite for what we were proposing. So. We realized this might be a goer, so then you take the really big decision and say, "Well, if this comes up, do we want to do it?" Yeah. And we both <coughs> have families, so there's things to consider there, and we both talk long and hard about it. But we decided we wanted to. We, well, a you know, it's genuinely a huge honour to come and be asked to run the Abbey. But we also felt there was a, there was an exciting job to do to try and change it, um, and I think not everything has worked. And there's definitely th- you know, but you know, we're into we're about to go into year three. We announce year three in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but I'm w- we're thrilled by the audience response is extraordinary. The building has really been buzzing the last two years, and this year, especially. Um, but as you say, Graham sometimes calls it Abbey. <laughs> Sh- Schrodinger's Abbey, Schrodinger's Abbey, because people want it to completely change, and they want it to stay the same. Absolutely. And, and <coughs> it's a balancing act to do that. And we're trying to do that. Um, but people have been extraordinary. We've had extraordinary support. From artists, from audiences the audience's response has been brilliant. you know at the end of a tough day standing in the theater, something you know, that that great sound of of the tanai, the hum of a tanai yeah. when you 've got a full house in the Abbey in the abbey theater it's it 's special it 's a special place
0: is there something possibly as you look back on the road that has led you here between uh, as you say, the Tron becoming the mm. engine room of Scottish theatre, mm. the kind of socialist outlook of 784, mm. linking mm. it maybe with free uh, previews here, the, you know, large scale sco- stuff with NTS, I'm going back to the touring model of NTS. Yeah. Uh, have you kind of distilled down your entire career
1: to date into the model for the Abbey? That's, I, I I'd never really thought of it as succinctly as that, but that's spot on. I think I, I, there's something from everywhere I've gone. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a political urgency of 784, I think there's the, that European sensibility of the citizens, which we also make the free preview from. That's what the citizens used to do. Got that idea from that. I think with NTS, there's that sense of two pints being in pubs in Ireland. Yeah. You know, that was an That that was absolutely a show in a pub. You know, thing from 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 NTS, from 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 the Tron. It was the balance of the program. Yeah. You know, having music, having dance, and say, no, no, the National Theatre can have that. It shouldn't just be the odd hire night. You know, we can work with Michael Keegan Dolan yes. and present Swan Lake for 10 days, and it should feel part of the Abbey program. Or, um, or we can work with, with So O'Toole and, and make music on Music Week and have a week of music here, and it shouldn't feel like, oh, why is that at the Abbey? Um, Theatre has to anchor what we do and always will. But I do think, you know, I think our audience... Uh, uh, Catholic and eclectic in the, in their in in, in that sense yes. in their taste. So I don't see why the theatre can't. As long as we never lose sight of what this theatre was built on. You mm-hmm. know what, Yeats and Lady Gregory and, and and those extraordinary people did and why they did it. I think as long as as long as you honour that and 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 you don't forget it, but you look forward. Mm-hmm. You've got to look forward as well. I think that's the real that's the job and that's the challenge.
0: So finally, then. In a number of years' time, mm. when it is time to move on, whether that's at the ten-year mark or otherwise, mm. as you look back on your time in the Abbey, what for you will have constituted a success, or what, what, what when, how will you be able to walk away going, "We we ticked that box, or we achieved that. Mm.
1: I'm happy here." I think that thing. I think that thing that I, you know, in ten years' time, to a whole new generation of theatre people, I hope the word Abbey still means the Abbey Theatre Dublin, you know, internationally, you know, locally, nationally, internationally, the word Abbey. I, I w- it should have that, that resonance. Um, I, I hope, in the end, I, I hope it's a theater that people want to work at and people want to come to.
0: I think that sounds pretty good to me. Neil Murray, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank it's thank a real honor. pleasure pleasure. So there you have it, the great Neil Murray. Brilliant to catch up with Neil and to get his story and his route through the business uh, and also get an insight into the you know one of the minds that's running our national theatre at the moment. I think it's a really important uh, touchstone for us. It kind of sets the temperature and sets the mood for the whole theatre ecology. So brilliant to have that chat with Neil. So look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of the theatrical goings-on around the country at the Abbey itself. The last couple of chances to catch Richard III and Rathmines Road and also they've got Double Cross coming up. At the gate it is Hamlet starring my pal Ruth Negga who I'm going to see tomorrow evening, which I'm very much looking forward to. At the Gaiety Theatre it's John B. Keen's The Matchmaker directed by Michael Scott, that's coming up soon. And at the Board Gosh Theatre it's Shrek the Musical. At Theatre Upstairs, up next is Cassowary coming up from Kevin C. Olihan. And at the new theatre it's Extremities. At Smock Alley they have Dracula for the season that's in it. And also Playground from our pals at Glass Mask, which is a series of rehearsed readings. At the Civic Theatre in Talla, it's The Mental, and at Pavilion, another chance to catch Swan Lake from the ever-brilliant Michael Keegan Dolan. Do yourself a favour and make the trip to catch that if you haven't yet seen it. At Dreacht in Blanche, it's Myra's Story and Holy Mary, and at The Viking in Clontarf, it's And Thank You, and that's followed by Brothers of the Brush. At the Dolman Theatre, it is what I believe is your last chance for the next foreseeable, on the island of Ireland anyway, to catch To Hell in a Handbag. That's definitely worth the trip. And at Beauty's Cafe Theatre in the lunchtime slot it is Ringer by Stuart Roach, again appropriate for the Halloween season. At the Project Arts Centre in Temple Bar they have Recovery and also The Bystander. And then out west at the Town Hall in Galway it's Portrait of the Artist from Rough Magic. At Limerick's Lime Tree Theatre they have Holy Mary and that'll be followed by Tan. And up north at the Lyric in Belfast it's Double Cross and Dear Arabella. So look, that is us. That is episode 51 of 52 in the books. We will of course be back one last time next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Ogue-McAnally, I'm Angus Ogue-McAnally. will see you next week.